I read a quote this week that beautifully sums up our relationship and responsibilities to God and to the world. And it says this, Love of God demands truth, and love of our neighbor demands action. Love of God demands truth, and love of neighbor demands action. Believing there is an absolute, objective truth that is applicable to all people is not hateful. If we love God, we must know and believe in His truth. God has already decided what is right and what is wrong. He hasn't left that up for us to decide. In fact, is that not what the original sin in Eden was about? Man and woman wanting to decide for themselves what is good and evil. Time and again, the Bible tells us there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. We've got to learn to look to God. How did God create the world and create us to work best? That's how we should strive to live. Dr. Ryan Anderson has been on the forefront of the marriage debate. He's worked very closely with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as with other organizations, um, promoting traditional marriage and even delivered some of the arguments in favor of traditional marriage before the Supreme Court. He has a new book coming out next month called Truth Overruled. And I read several articles that he wrote and some excerpts from his book. And in that, he puts forth a fascinating historical context that I had never considered. The context of the church's response to heresy throughout 2,000 years of church history. I had not thought about putting this into that context. See, from the earliest days of the church, heresies have always crept up. They, they, were, they, they kind of came up, the church debated them, they had councils, uh, and then they finally settled on what the church was to believe, what was orthodoxy, what was going to be doctrine for the church. Throughout these, these debates and these settlements, the church matured. The church grew in its faith. The church developed richer theologies. And the church's earliest heresies centered around the nature of God. Obviously, who is God? Who is Jesus? How did Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit work together? Was Jesus fully God? Was He fully man? Was He, was he half and half? And so the church debated these things. And out of those early heresies came our rich doctrines of who Jesus is and, and the work that He did for us on the cross, His nature... And the, the doctrine of the Trinity became more solidified. During the Protestant Reformation, the nature of the church and salvation were debated, leaving the church with richer theologies of ecclesiology and soteriology, doctrines of the church, doctrines of salvation. And so Anderson observes that the Holy Spirit continually leads the church to defend and deepen its understanding of the truth against whatever particular Ages, uh, errors of the age might be. And he goes on to make the amazing connection to the issues of the 20th and 21st centuries. Issues like genocide, slavery, abortion, the sexual revolution with its fallouts, including same-sex marriage and transgenderism. And so he writes this, Today the most pressing heresies, the newest challenges for the church's teaching and mission, center not on the nature of God or the church, for salvation, but on the nature of man. The tribulations that mark the 20th century and continue into the 21st century have sprung from a faulty humanism. 
I don't mean to equate each of these human tragedies with the others, but they all spring from faulty anthropology, a misunderstanding of the nature of man as God created us and as we are in a sinful world. I love that hopeful perspective. That idea that we are in the midst of just working out our theology of humankind. And I believe the Holy Spirit will lead us through this to embrace a stronger, more biblical view of human nature. We must pursue God's truth about ourselves. And we must proclaim it because we love God. Love of God demands truth. And because we love people, we must act on that truth. You see, it isn't just enough for us to believe that something is true, but just keep it to ourselves. You know, we can just talk about this stuff amongst ourselves at church and our Bible study groups, but, but that's it. We're just going to kind of keep this to ourselves. If we love people, if we really want to serve the world together, that love and that service demands that we live out God's truth. Love of God demands truth, but love of our neighbor demands action based on that truth. Last week we began looking at God's truth concerning marriage. We contemplated whether marriage has an essential nature that by definition excludes certain consensual adult unions. Is it exclusive? In its essential nature, last week we said that marriage is when a man and a woman, two equal yet fundamentally different people, come together and become one in every way possible. That's what marriage is, this idea of oneness. Two becoming one in every way possible. And then we said that because of the oneness of that male-female union, marriage is naturally oriented toward procreation. We said, uh, sort of bluntly, we said sex makes babies, society needs babies, and babies deserve a mother and a father. And finally, we recognize that every marriage comes with an expectation of permanence. And I said that a strong marriage culture brings security and stability to society. And I think especially it brings security and stability to women and to children. Marriage is a benefit to them. In other words, to sum it up, there are legitimate reasons why every civilization until this one has defined marriage as one man and one woman committed to each other for a lifetime. Last week we focused in a positive way on that biblical design for marriage. And and while I want to try to keep things on the positive side of the issue, I feel that today we need to spend some time considering why same-sex relationships do not possess those three essential qualities. So I want to take what we talked about last week and briefly apply it to the issue that's in the forefront of our country today. One of the most popular arguments I seem to to, to read about and to hear from those in favor of same-sex marriage is to compare this issue with interracial marriages. But we must remember that interracial marriages are actual marriages. A man and a woman of different ethnicities can still fulfill all the essential qualities of traditional marriage. Oneness, procreation, and permanence. Denying marriage to a man and a woman because they have different skin color would be wrongful discrimination. 
And, and for anybody to say otherwise than that are not looking at what God's Word says about the worth and value of human beings. But you may say, well, isn't it discrimination to deny marriage to people because of their sexual orientation then? How is that any different? Well, let me say this first. It is discrimination. To deny marriage to same-sex couples is discrimination. But we have to remember that discrimination isn't always bad. Discrimination can actually be appropriate and at times necessary. For example, if I were to go into McDonald's tomorrow morning, I could not order a cup of coffee at the senior adult rate, could I? As much as I would like to. They are not going to let me order my coffee and get the senior adult rate. The Lego Discovery Center in Atlanta will not let an adult enter unless they are accompanying a child. So if you just want to go and play with Legos, Lego Discovery Center, they're not going to let you in unless you're with your daughter, your son, your niece, your nephew, somebody like that. Many, many careers require certain kinds of education, training, experience, or certification before they will hire you. In these examples, discrimination is good because the discrimination is based on essential qualities like age, whether you're supervising a child or not, appropriate level of training or experience needed to do a job. The discrimination achieves a positive result, giving older people on a fixed income a break. Ensuring that children are safe when they're in a place like that. They're safe from potential predators. Ensuring quality work in a safe work environment. The discrimination leads to positive results. However, if McDonald's refused me coffee or charged me more because they thought I was overweight, or if I go to the Lego Discovery Center with Abby and they don't let me in because they don't like my hair color, or if I go to apply for a job and they turn me down because of my political beliefs, that would be discrimination based on arbitrary qualities. And that would be wrong. So let's apply this to marriage. Same-sex marriage cannot be compared to the Jim Crow era bans against interracial marriage because denying someone marriage because of skin color is arbitrary. Skin color has nothing to do with the essential nature of marriage. But if marriage is a unique kind of relationship that serves a specific purpose, and if gender matters in marriage, then denying a man and a man marriage is appropriate because it's related to marriage's essential qualities. McDowell and Stone Street summarize it like this. When it comes to marriage... The difference between essential discrimination and arbitrary discrimination has to do with what marriage is, not what sexual orientation is. This has nothing to do with sexual orientation. It has to do with the essential nature of marriage. So the Bible rejects same-sex marriage because the relationship of two men or two women is of a different essential nature. This isn't arbitrary. There's nothing arbitrary about this. Think about our three essential marriage qualities we talked about last week. The first one is that two men or two women cannot become one like a woman and a man. And so in same-sex relationships, relational oneness is replaced with relational intensity. 
Because neither the kind of sexual activity nor the result of sexual activity is significant. Only that there is sexual activity. And so relational oneness is not possible in the way it is for a man and a woman. So they talk about relational intensity. The intensity of their feelings for each other. Secondly, redefining marriage based on the sincerity of the couple's commitment or the depth of their affection disconnects marriage from procreation. And if marriage is not tied to procreation, then why would you want to limit marriage to a couple? Think about that. If marriage has nothing to do with having and raising children, why limit it to two people? What if three people share a sincere commitment and deep affection for each other? In the name of fairness, marriage would have to be extended to consenting polygamists, polyamorous groupings, or even to people who are related. Because if it's not about having and raising children, why not? In this view, it's hard to see why any committed group of people should be left out of marriage. Now, a fair question that's often raised about this second point, about procreation. I think this is the point that most people have a difficult time with. People say, well, what about couples who are unable to conceive? Or couples who don't want to have children? And I would answer that if a couple can't or doesn't want to have children, their marriages still do not redefine the nature or functional purpose of marriage in society like same-sex marriage does. Does that make sense? Marriage is still the best context into which children can be born and raised. Julie and I went to Ryan Cook's wedding. Remember Ryan Cook? He got married yesterday. And it was a wonderful ceremony. He had a great time getting to catch up with a lot of my former youth. And the reception was in a community center. And so when Julie and Abby and I finally left the reception, and we kind of walked from this end of the building, left the wedding reception... And we walked across the building to go out, and on the other end of the building, there was a baby shower. And without even thinking, I said, well, how about that? How appropriate is that? you got a wedding reception on one end of the building, a baby shower on the other. We kind of chuckled. And then I thought about that afterward, and I thought, you know, it's just intuitive. It's just intuitive that marriages tend to lend to baby showers, don't they? And and, and whether a particular couple has children or not, it still doesn't change the fact that we intuitively know that children are often and often expected to be the results of marriage. Ryan Anderson, again, explains the role of gender and procreation in marriage best. I quote him because he's a lot smarter than me, and he puts this very succinctly. He says, Marriage is based on the anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary. The biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman and the social reality that children deserve a mother and a father. Redefining marriage to make it a genderless institution fundamentally changes marriage. And this is already beginning. In the state of California, they've removed the words husband and wife from all official state documents because marriage has now become a genderless institution. It makes the relationship more about the desires of adults than the needs or rights of children. It teaches the lie that mothers and fathers are interchangeable. 
Now, unfortunately, our culture's understanding of marriage and the way we practice marriage has been slowly declining for decades. This didn't just happen last month. And that's reflected in our high rates of divorce, of children born out of wedlock, and the high rate of cohabitation in our country. Most adults today don't think of marriage as being about raising children. They think about it as primarily a way way in which two adults affirm their emotional commitment to one another. And if marriage is only about my feelings for my spouse, when those feelings change, and let's be honest, they do, right, on a daily basis. You've got your ups and your downs. There are days you're madly in love, and there are days she wants to kill you. You know, I mean, it's just... That's just the way it goes. Sometimes you're in the doghouse, right? Um, so it, it does. It, 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 those feelings grow. They, they, they shrink. They go up. They go down. They, it's the commitment to each other that keeps you together, not just the emotions or the feelings. But if marriage is only about my feelings for my spouse, if there's nothing else to it than that, and, and maybe the marriage just isn't doing it for me anymore, then we lose... And I'm not saying that about us, okay? You're doing it for me, okay? Speaking hypothetically, when that happens, if all marriage is is about my emotional commitment to another person, regardless of gender, regardless of oneness, regardless of procreation, then we lose the third essential quality of marriage, and that's permanence. If same-sex marriage isn't about children, but about these two people's feelings for each other, why is there any need or expectation for either permanence or exclusivity? Why would you need or expect those things? And we all know that this essential characteristic of marriage, this idea of permanence, we all know that it's in trouble in America among heterosexual couples, right? I mean, as heterosexuals, we, uh, we don't have a great track record on this one. And it's a serious problem, especially in the church in North America. So, that, so I'm not getting up on my high horse on this one. This is something we as Christians and as churches must address is this problem of divorce. But research does show, statistically speaking, homosexual couples have an even worse problem with, with monogamy and permanence than heterosexual couples do. Several rigorous, peer-reviewed medical studies show that long-term committed gay male couples break up at twice the normal rate as heterosexual couples. And lesbian couples are twice as likely as the gay male couples to break up. So why are homosexual relationships so highly unstable? I believe that it's in part because of how God has hardwired men and women differently. Men tend to temper the relational intensity of women, whereas other women tend to amplify it. While women tend to settle men down sexually, while studies show that even among long-term committed gay male couples, they are very highly likely to allow for outside sexual relationships. They don't settle each other down the way women do. God made men and women different for a reason. We complement each other. The effects of sin are obvious. We are all sexual sinners in one way or another. I want you to hear me. We are all sexual sinners in one way or another. We are all experience some form of sexual brokenness. We are all in need of forgiveness and we are all in need of healing. Can I get an amen? 
In the face of the seduction of cohabitation, no-fault divorce, extramarital sex, non-marital childbearing, pornography, the hookup culture, I could go on and on. What can the church, as a more fulfilling, more humane, more liberating alternative, what can we offer as that kind of alternative to the world? If we love God, we must pursue His truth. If we love our neighbors, we must act on that truth. Last week, we pursued the truth about marriage as nature for all people as created by God in Genesis 1 and 2 and as affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to consider how the nature of marriage as redeemed by Christ and described by Paul in Ephesians 5 calls us to action out of love for the world around us. How can we offer marriage as that more humane, more fulfilling, more liberating, countercultural alternative to the world? Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21. This picks up right after where Tyler stopped reading. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of His body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God designed marriage the way He did in Genesis for the ultimate purpose of painting a picture to illustrate his love for humanity. In Counterculture, David Platt writes, just as a photograph represents a person or an event in history, marriage was designed by God to reflect a person and an event at the most pivotal point in history. In the picture of marriage, God intends to portray Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ on the canvas of human culture. This was a countercultural view of marriage in the Greco-Roman world. And it is just as controversial today. Because we live in a culture where self-gratification and self-fulfillment, self-discovery, those are the highest aims. So why should we be surprised that marriage has become an end in itself for the personal fulfillment of the individual? Which goes right in keeping with our culture. As Christians... How we live, and and, and that's whether you're a married Christian or a single Christian, how we live allows us to demonstrate that marriage isn't 
an end to itself, but a means to an end. And that end is that there is more to life than self-gratification. There's more to life than self-fulfillment. And there's only one person who can ever truly complete you. And that person is Jesus Christ. When a, when a husband denies himself and sacrifices his needs and his desires for the sake of his wife and children, he pictures Christ who gave up everything, everything he had for the good of the church. That's what that husband is demonstrating. When a husband loves and cherishes his wife and does all he can to bless her, he reflects Jesus who laid down his rights and his life for the splendor and well-being of his bride, the church. This is what the Bible means by the husband being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It isn't about him lording authority over her but about loving and serving her. Did you get that? It's not about lording authority, it's about loving and serving. A Christian husband who reflects Jesus is a man who gives up everything he has for the good of his wife and children. And in so doing, he is drawing a picture for his family and for his community of Christ's love for his people. Service and self-sacrificing love... That's a radically different view of authority than the world's view, isn't it? And when a wife is respectful of her husband and lovingly submits to his leadership, she is showing an understanding of submission that is radically different from the world's understanding of submission. You see, we oftentimes, even in the church, especially in the church, we kind of cringe at these words. Submission and headship. You know, when, when it's applied to men and women, we kind of cringe. It's, it's almost like, you know, a lot of Christians are kind of embarrassed by this passage of Scripture. Let's just kind of clean this up and, and move along. But the reason for that is because we have adopted the world's definition of these words. Not the Bible's definition of these words. Paul's not describing a relationship of superiority and inferiority. He isn't talking about domination and subordination. I mean, think back to Proverbs 31. Does that woman sound dominated and inferior? No. She's an empowered woman who is out in the community being a blessing to others, being a blessing for her family, and she's working hard, and she's providing, and she is doing everything she can to make sure that her husband is respected and her children and her servants are cared for. And she's praised at home and at the city gate. Remember last week we said that men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth. They're equal. Biblically, submission means to willingly yield to another out of love. Let me say that again. Submission means to willingly yield to another out of love. All of us operate in submission to others, whether it's children to their parents, students to their teachers, employees to their bosses, partners in business one to another, players to their coach, and consider how a committee here at the church, if you've ever been on a committee, how a committee works. If that committee's trying to come together to consensus on an issue, the members of that committee have to submit, have to yield willingly one to another for the good of the church. Paul says that when a woman submits to her husband, she pictures how we as the church are to submit to Christ. But I think also the beauty of submission 
is that it reflects also the divine nature of God as revealed in the Trinity, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about that. The three persons of the Trinity are equal. They're equally divine. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They are equally worthy of worship. And no member of the Trinity is inferior to or superior to another. None of them subordinate or dominate the others. Yet Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. As Jesus faced the cross, you remember, He asked that the Father's will be done, not His own. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus' relationship with the Father. If the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and who is the head of Christ? God. So within the Trinity of God, we find loving, willing submission. Not the Father dominating the Son, nor the Son forced into compulsory subordination. Rather, Jesus gladly yields Himself to the Father in the context of love. Because after all, God is love, right? So when a wife gladly submits herself in love and respect to the, to the loving, serving authority of her husband, out of this context of mutual love for one another and their marital commitment to one another, she is exemplifying for us how we are to relate to Christ and how each member of the Godhead relates to the other in the Trinity. It's a beautiful picture. See, God doesn't want us to begrudgingly follow Him out of fear. He doesn't want to rule over us like a domineering, tyrannical deity. He laid down His life for our own good. And so we gladly yield to Him in love. And that is the picture a healthy Christian marriage is supposed to display to the world. I know, it's no pressure, right? <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. When husbands and wives can relate to each other in such Christ-like and godly ways, they take that created intent of marriage and they expand it into a kingdom intent of marriage. They display, they take those three essential qualities and they display them as three essential qualities of the kingdom. And we'll close with this. For example, oneness points to unity. Husbands, we are there to serve our wives, not to command them. Wives, you are there to compliment your husbands, not to compete with them. We should live and act as a team, right? Pulling in the same direction, with one heart, with one mind, with one purpose. We have the opportunity to be living examples of the unity the church is supposed to have. And, and, and as in our culture, we are being pushed more and more toward conformity and uniformity. More than ever today, we have an opportunity to show our world something better than conformity and uniformity. We can display the eternal truths of unity in diversity, of equality with variety. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Second, procreation points to disciple-making. Just as God commanded Adam and Eve as bearers of His image, to fill the earth and form it. Jesus commands Christians to fill the earth with disciples and spiritually form them into the image of Christ. If marriage must be about more than just the happiness of two adults, and certainly our churches and families must, must be more than just about our happiness and personal salvation, we must multiply ourselves by sharing the gospel and making disciples. 
How we love our spouses, how we parent our children should fulfill the great commission and reflect kingdom realities. Amen? We need to be spiritual parents of our children and of those that we lead to faith in Jesus, teaching them, mentoring them, and holding them accountable. And third, permanence points to faithfulness. Last week I mentioned that we worship a covenant God, a God who always keeps His Word and is ever faithful. We have the opportunity to reflect that faithfulness in our marriages. Because after all, we live in a throwaway culture. We live in a culture where relationships are easy in and easy out, and people don't want to commit to anyone or anything because something better may come down the road. As we live out God's truth about marriage and sexuality, we can offer a different worldview. One that values faithfulness and committing to go the distance with someone no matter the cost. Husbands and wives must be faithful to one another for better or for worse till death do them part. And mothers and fathers must take their obligations to their children seriously. And you may say, well, what about single adults? Where where do single adults fit into all of this? Well, the Bible is very clear about its expectations, God's expectations for single adults. They should be preparing for potential future marital lives right now so they can be faithful to the vows they may make someday. Commit now. Young people especially, commit now to your future spouse by being sexually faithful to him or her, by avoiding all sexual activity outside of marriage. Save yourselves so that you can truly be one with that spouse someday. The Bible also speaks to those who will be single for the rest of their lives, whether that's because they never marry or they were married at some point and now they're single and and maybe they just don't plan on or just won't get married for the rest of their lives. The Bible calls them to honor marriage By being sexually pure. Reject the world's claims that sex is the ultimate pleasure, pursuit, and personal fulfillment. It's not. Show the world that the ultimate fulfillment is in pursuing Jesus Christ. Be a living example of God's holiness and the purity of Christ's love for His church. Maximize the full potential of your singleness by committing to Christ's commission for you to make disciples. You know, singles have unique opportunities to serve Christ in ways that married couples never can. In fact, Paul was single and he said, well, I wish that everybody would be single like me because if you're single like me, you're unhindered. And you can just go out there and you can go wherever God sends and you don't have to take other things into consideration. So singles have, have time, they have resources, they have energy that they can contribute to God's mission in very unique ways. Both Paul and Jesus talk highly about God's unique call on singles as missionaries, disciple makers, and passionate pursuers of God. God calls all of us, whether we are married or single, to shine the light of Jesus to the world, doesn't He? See, the call of Christ is the call to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Jesus. To be a Christian is to reject self-gratification in order to live for God glorification. That's what it's about. And as I said last week, it's a high and a holy calling. Not just to marriage. It's a high commitment and a holy calling to singleness. To parenting. To the Christian life. Today, Jesus is calling you to Himself. 
He's calling you to His church. He's calling you to His mission. He's calling you to see, to let others see Jesus in you. Through your actions, through your words, and how you work, and how you play. Jesus is calling you to let others see Him through you. Maybe today you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow Him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been pursuing other relationships for, for personal fulfillment. Maybe you've been trying to, to find your identity in a particular lifestyle or a particular activity and you realize those things are empty. They don't fulfill. Today Jesus is ready to receive you into His family. He's ready to adopt you as His child. He's ready to come and live inside of you and to fill that God-shaped hole that no one and nothing else ever can. If you will come today and put your faith and trust in Him. Maybe today God is calling you to unite with this church family. There's a unique place for you here that you can come and be a part of us and display that unity and help us make disciples and demonstrate what faithfulness means as you be faithful to God's church. God is calling you to join this church. You come. And I'd be glad to help you do that today. Or maybe God has put something else on your heart. Maybe God has laid someone on your heart that you need to go out of these doors and pray for and reach out to and love on and share Jesus with. Maybe He's, maybe he's spoken to your heart about your commitment as a husband or a wife or as a mother or father. Whatever God has spoken to you, my prayer is that you'll obey and you will realize the riches of Christ are yours if you will but take them. As we stand and as we sing together, let others... See Jesus in you. Would you come?